Hello, everyone. Coming right up on the Van Maren Show is my interview with Dr. Matthew Harrison, one of the doctors that pioneered the abortion pill reversal method. That's coming right up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Matthew Harrison, who pioneered the abortion pill reversal strategy, which is fundamental to saving the lives of preborn children, even after women have already begun the self-abortion through the use of the RU486 pill. Dr. Matthew Harrison is a phenomenal pro-life physician who has given us an unbelievably important strategy for saving babies. That's coming right up. Thank you so much for joining us. Here is my interview with Dr. Matthew Harrison. So just to start off, um, how did you enter the medical profession and when did the pro-life issue really attract your attention? Uh, So I went to medical school at the Medical College of Virginia in uh, 1994 to 1998. I graduated from William and Mary with a degree in biology, hoping to go into the medical field, but I really uh, didn't have the grades or experience I needed to get into medical school. So um, I went to uh, Baltimore and camped out there until I could get a job at Johns Hopkins doing um, research. And I ended up doing research in, in a lab there on cannabinoid receptors in the brain. So I was doing essentially receptor research. And then when I left there, I actually became, I went on staff with Young Life for a year. And then I went to Duke and did research in Alzheimer's disease, looking for uh, essentially the Alzheimer's gene. And then when I reapplied to medical school, they said I need to go back and get my master's. So I went back to William & Mary, got a master's doing uh, uh, bacterial research. And then I left there. And then I went to Medical College of Virginia. Uh, trying to get into medical school. And that's when I was doing cannabinoid receptor research. And then I went to start medical school in 1994. And so my pro-life kind of pro-life pathway was just really from being raised in a very, you know, kind of a Christian pro-life home. Right. Um, this was back in the seventies uh, when uh, Roe versus Wade was being debated. <clears throat> I went to a Presbyterian church, Rivermont Presbyterian church in Lynchburg, Virginia, that was very pro-life. We had some pro-life activism in our church. And at the time, my mother was actually pregnant with her sixth child. And uh, she unfortunately lost that child at birth. And even as a kid, when I was eight years old, I was thinking, you know, we had a little funeral at the hospital. And I was thinking, this is really weird. You know, we have doctors and nurses in here crying about the loss of this baby, yet there are other babies that are being intentionally killed. Um, that are essentially the same age. And even as an eight-year-old, that struck me as very odd and and kind of hypocritical. So uh, I think that was really a a big part of my formation in becoming a a pro-life physician. Uh, When I went to medical school, um, I remember uh, when we started our clinicals, we were supposed to go to Planned Parenthood, and um, uh, they hired four women to do pelvic exams on for 180 medical students and you can imagine how barbaric that would be for 
180 medical students had never done a pelvic exam in their life to do it on four, four women. Okay. And even though they were hired, I felt that that was, um, you know, not respectful and, and just very barbaric to do to yeah. these women. <laughs> and so uh, myself and three other people just declined and we said we just refused to go. We didn't want to go into that facility anyway. And so I started making some stands in medical school um, and had some run-ins with some of my you know, professors and also with uh, some of the students there as well, because many of them felt that, that the doctors should be forced to, um, to learn how to do abor- abortion procedures, even if they didn't believe in them. Really? So, yeah. So when I, uh, when I, after I graduated, I went to uh, <clears throat> University of South Alabama residency and um, within my first week I was in clinicals and I was asked to um, by a 16 year old girl to uh, write birth control for her and her boyfriend. And, uh, and it was kind of a pivotal moment for me because I realized I'd be kind of complicit in her activities if I was helping kind of allowing her to do what I felt was, you know, not only morally incorrect, but also just physically unhealthy and medically unhealthy for her to be involved in these behaviors as a, as a, as a single person. And so I told her I couldn't prescribe birth control uh, for her. And I also explained how birth control worked, uh, how there are abortifacient properties to the medication and that's right on the package inserts. And, um, and so after that, I went to my director, of course, I'd only been there a month and I said, listen, I don't feel comfortable prescribing birth control. And, uh, he was a very liberal guy, but uh, fortunately he said, you know what, I, I believe, I believe that you should have the, the right to not be forced to do something against your moral code. And, um, <clears throat> and so I, I didn't, I, I did not write for birth control or refer for abortions or sterilizations throughout my residency. And fortunately they supported me in that. And, um, and so my wife and I, we had just gotten married at the beginning of medical school. So we actually became teachers in the symptothermal method of natural family planning. And so we continued to teach classes while I was in residency. And uh, when I started residency, I had two children. I had one more while I was in residency. And then after uh, graduating, um, we've had, um, we have four more living children. We've uh, lost uh, a set of twins in miscarriage and then we lost another single um, pregnancy. So, um, so anyway, that, that's kind of how my pro-life, you know, medicine evolved. Um, you know, I did not become Catholic until four years ago. Um, so, uh, you know, even though the pro-life stance of the Catholic church was very attractive to me and that stimulated me towards, I guess, investigating more and, and, and ultimately becoming Catholic. Um, that was not, you know, I, I wasn't pro-life because I was Catholic. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually reformed myself, and I, we we grew up pro-life too in our family as well. It's uh, it's also not something that's difficult to figure out, even from a, a very basic perspective, with the gains that we continue to see in in, in embryology and in uh, surgery on babies in the womb. When you've got one newspaper headline about Democratic president, a presidential candidates advocating abortion until birth, and another one about a baby who's just had surgery done on its spine bifida. You know, at a very young age in the womb in, in Kansas, 
I think anybody can see the contrast, which is why America has um, at least uh, consistently trended pro-life or held steady since 1991-1992 when polling was done on this issue. So the the interesting thing, uh, when, when you get into the data uh, on, on how abortions are being done, you see both pro-life activists very concerned that the abortion pill is the way of the future, especially if we see an increasing division between pro-life America and those states that are pushing their abortion clinics out one by one, and then the resolutely pro-choice America like New York and California and states like that. And, of course, we see the abortion pill um, being promoted by nations like the Netherlands who have tried to smuggle it in to nations where abortion's illegal. And a lot of people are saying, you know, the future of abortion is stay-at-home abortion uh, abortion pills. And it's, it's presented a challenge for the pro-life movement because they've been trying to figure out how to respond to this very specific threat. How do you respond to it when... There's not a clinic to focus on. How do you respond to it when there's there's no abortionist that you can try to persuade to quit the business? Um, how do you persuade a, a woman to not go into the clinic when she might not even be going into the clinic to begin with? And so a lot of traditional forms of pro-life activists are defanged by, by the abortion pill. When did you first become aware of the abortion pill? Because what you've done, um, what you've done in response to the abortion pill is just exceptional, and I want to get there in a minute. But to start off with, like, when did you first become aware uh, of what the abortion pill was? Yeah, so even in medical school, there, you know, we had heard that it was coming, and that it was already available in Europe. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was already available in Europe while I was in medical school, and they had been doing clinical trials and had been using mifepristone mainly at the 600 milligram dose in Europe. They found that it had a lot of side effects um, at that higher dose. When it was approved in uh, the year 2000 in, for, uh, in the U.S., is approved at 200 milligrams uh, up to um, seven, uh, uh, seven weeks pregnancy. Or, uh, yeah, initially it's up to seven weeks. Now it's up to 10 weeks uh, gestation. And, um, and so I, I knew it even coming out into my residency that it, it was coming and is going to be available. So when I graduated residency in 2001, it was, it was available in the United States. And when I left, uh, when I left Alabama and came to North Carolina, I joined what's called a natural family planning only practice. So right. the whole practice did not prescribe birth control or refer for abortions or sterilizations. And so uh, my partner uh, then went through the Pope Paul the sixth Institute uh, training for NAPRO fertility treatments. And those fertility treatments involve progesterone use for women who have what's called a short luteal phase defect, where they're not producing enough progesterone in order to maintain a pregnancy. And so a lot of these women have uh, recurrent uh, miscarriages. And so uh, for years, we've been um, uh, supplementing those pregnancies with progesterone the women have, have not had major side effects. The babies have not had uh, birth defects. And uh, we've been able, I mean, we even had women come to our clinic who had tried in vitro fertilization and spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to achieve pregnancy. And all they really needed was progesterone supplementation uh, and uh, fertility focused intercourse. And they were able to achieve uh, pregnancy and have babies okay. uh, without a whole lot of problems. So, um, yeah, so uh, uh, Dr. Holland was doing that, and so we happened to have progesterone in our office. 
So I was aware of RU46, of methapristone. I was aware of how it worked. Um, and um, and uh, that is a progesterone blocker. And we just happened to have progesterone in our office. So for those who don't totally understand how the abortion pill works, I know there's a bit of confusion among some people and a lot of the listeners and the viewers won't be entirely clear as to exactly how the uh, RU486, the abortion pill, actually um, triggers uh, an abortion. So if you could just walk us through those steps, how exactly does the abortion pill result in, in, in an abortive miscarriage? Sure. So, and, and many people confuse it with Plan B which right. is a, 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 di- a different medication. Um, and so uh, RE46 is mifepristone. It's uh, essentially a progesterone blocker. It looks to the receptor in the body. It looks like progesterone. And so it connects to the receptor, kind of like a key going into a lock, but it does not unlock the lock. It doesn't activate the lock. And so it, it essentially also blocks the ability for other keys, other forms of progesterone to get into that receptor. And so these receptors uh, are lined at the uh, placenta, at the interface between the mother and the baby. Uh, And when those receptors are blocked by RU46, the mother essentially goes through what we call withdrawal bleeding. And so in a woman's normal cycle, she'll have progesterone that's being produced by something called the corpus luteum. And that is preparing her uterus for the implantation of a possible baby of a possible pregnancy. If she does not become pregnant, then the, uh, the progesterone uh, level decreases and the uh, lining of the uterus sloughs off. And that's called a menstrual cycle. And women have those every month. Mm -hmm. And so those occur when progesterone essentially decreases to the point where it cannot sustain that layer inside the uterus. And so what RU46 does is it mimics that whole process. It blocks the progesterone receptor. The woman's body thinks, oh, I'm not pregnant, so I'm going to slough off the lining of my uterus. Unfortunately, now the lining of the uterus contains a baby that's attached in a placenta at a very early age, but we're still talking anywhere from six to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Right. And so, you know, these little babies have hearts and eyes and arms and legs and, and, you know, they're, they just need time and the right environment to grow uh, further. So uh, when the uh, progesterone is blocked, then the baby sloughs off and essentially uh, loses all nutrients, loses its uh, oxygen levels, loses anything to support the pregnancy and the, and the and the baby dies. And then uh, 24 to 48 hours later, the woman is given a second medication called um, Cytotec or Mesoprestol. And she either takes that vaginally or sometimes uh, in her, by mouth. Um, and that uh, starts labor. And so that then expels the, um, the dead fetus. So that's the RU46 abortion pill process. When is the first time you you encountered it uh, medically? What was the what was the event that sort of started you on the road that you ended up on with working on abortion pill reversal? Yeah, so I really I'd done very little ER work as a physician while as a resident. I had worked in the emergency room uh, in a very small town <clears throat> um, outside of Mobile. When I was working in Mobile, which is a very big charity hospital situation, whenever there was 
a, a complication of bleeding or something like that. Um, most of these were from not from RE46 because it wasn't in wide, widespread use at that time. So in 2001, when I started in private practice, I did not have much exposure to it at all right. because I have a pro-life practice. I'm not working in the emergency room. I'm, I'm doing OBGYN work as a family practice doctor, but all of my patients were getting their prenatal care through me. And so I wasn't handing, handling complications of abortion pills or anything like that. So in 2006, I had, uh, we, my partner and I would actually go down to the abortion clinic and on the sidewalk and offer free care to women. Uh, if, if that was their impediment um, to having a baby, we would say, listen, come to us. We'll, offer, we'll give you your prenatal care. We'll deliver you for free. And if that's the issue, we'll be glad to provide that for you. And so we were, we were doing prenatal care for abor- abortion vulnerable women uh, for years. And then in 2006, we, we had relationships with crisis pregnancy centers uh, around town. And so one of them called me up and said, listen, we have a woman who has taken RE46, um, the abortion pill. Mm-hmm. And she changed her mind. What can we do? And so that was, was really my exposure to to the pill and what do we do in that situation. And so how did you figure out, how did that situation go? Did you figure out how to reverse it at that point? Because we'll get into this a bit later, but as you know, um, Planned Parenthood and NARAL and all of the major abortion organizations are constantly pumping out press releases and articles and, you know, paying for op-eds in, in mainstream media outlets that essentially say it's impossible to reverse the abortion pill. How did that first uh, scenario play out? Yeah, so uh, Ashley is 19 years old. She came into the uh, the clinic sent from <clears throat> the uh, the um, crisis pregnancy center here in Concord, North Carolina, Cabarrus Women's Center. And uh, I, I said, I didn't really know what to do, but just send her over. So she came over, I met her and her mother. She said that, you know, uh, she had, she had gotten pregnant uh, unexpectedly. Initially, her boyfriend said that, you know, I'll take care of you and your baby if you ever get pregnant. But once she did get pregnant, he like gave her 260 bucks and said, here, go get an abortion. Right. And she was just like punched in the gut with this whole thing because it was, her whole world was caving in. And we see that a lot in women that are in these stressful situations. They feel like they don't have choices. She was told by her boyfriend, your parents are going to reject you. You're not going to go back to school, get to school and finish your degree as a respiratory therapist. Everything's going to fall apart if you keep this baby. But she was raised in a Christian home and thankfully her parents were so supportive and, uh, you know, uh, didn't try to shame her or, you know, abandon her. They weren't really able to support her and her grandchild. And so she came in and she said she wanted to keep the baby. She would do whatever it takes to keep this baby. And I said, you know, I said, well, literally I need to step into my office and think and pray about this, which is what I did. I went out of the exam room, went to my office. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about how, how RE46 works. I looked, you know, in the physician desk reference and, and, uh, that it works as a progesterone blocker. And I said, you know, and of course I'd, I'd been, I felt like I'd been stalled in my medical career. I wanted to go to medical school right, right out of college. But interestingly, I ended up doing protein receptor research. I published in the field uh, of um, pediatric leukemia and, and also in neurotransmitters in the brain receptors. And so I just had this basic knowledge of, you know, well, uh, the receptor model says that there, there's got to be something that activates the receptor. There's going to be something that blocks the receptor. 
what if we just put in more good keys? What if we just put kind of flood the system with progesterone and, uh, and out-compete the RU46 at the receptor site? Because very rarely is it ever a one-and-done deal. It's right. not like RU46 attaches to the receptor and never lets go. It has a certain affinity for the receptor. So there's a certain percentage that it's on, and there's a certain percentage that it's off of the receptor. So I said, if we just flood the, the system with more progesterone, it would improve our chances of activating it and activating the receptor and nullifying the uh, RE46. Right, right. So, yeah, so I, I went in, I, I proposed this to her, and I said, listen, we have progesterone right here in the office. We can give you an injection. It's going to give you extra progesterone. We'll block the RE46. And I think that this is the best and only way that we might be able to nullify the effects of the medicine you took. And this is very similar to, you know, if, if someone comes in, you know, with a heroin overdose, which is done hundreds of thousands of times every day in the United States and everybody gets Narcan. I mean, to get Narcan in, in, uh, to the EMS workers so that they, as soon as they see these folks, you know, laid out in the street or in their cars, they you spray them in the nose with some Narcan nasal spray and start to reverse the effects of the poison that's in their system. So that's really the idea that I gave her. And I said, listen, I know the progesterone is safe for you. I know that progesterone is safe for your, your baby, <clears throat> but this has never been done before. I don't know whether it's going to prolong an inevitable abortion uh, this is something we're gonna have to watch very, very closely, make sure that the baby survives and that the baby, if the baby does die, that the baby is not left inside of you for a long time, uh, which could in, increase her risks of infection. Mm -hmm. So she said, listen, I, I absolutely understand that the, this has never been done before. And, and I want to take the risk, uh, to try to save my baby. And so, you know, we, we gave her that injection. Uh, and that was on a Friday or actually on Thursday. And so the, uh, the next day she, that evening on Friday evening, she started to bleed. And so we said, well, listen, it sounds like you might be losing the baby. Uh, go ahead and go to the emergency room, tell them what's going on. They can call us if they need to. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, let's see what, what's happening. So she went to the emergency room. Fortunately, she, she had a very good emergency room doctor who did not whisk her off for a DNC. Uh, they did an ultrasound, saw a heartbeat, and she said, you know, if that heartbeat was the only thing I got to see out of this, that would have made it all worth it. She was so excited because they didn't let her see the heartbeat when she went for the abortion. Right. Yeah. And so um, she had called the abortion clinic when all this was happening, and they said, oh, you know, if the baby survives, it's going to have, you know, three eyes and, you know, it'll be developmentally delayed. And they really tried all these scare tactics, which there's absolutely no uh, scientific evidence for at all. And, um, and so she, uh, so the ER doctor said, you know, listen, go home, hope for the best, go back to Dr. Harrison on Monday. And so she did. And, and fortunately the bleeding stopped. And, um, and so she came in on Monday, we saw the heartbeat again. We gave her another injection of progesterone and we continue those progesterone injections uh, about every other day through the first trimester. And, um, and then at, right at 40 weeks, uh, little Kaylee was born, precious little girl. P placenta was normal. She is completely normal. And she's 12 years old now. And, uh, you know, 
she's doing great. She has no developmental delay. She has no physical problems. She's, she's, uh, she's a great young lady. Now, how did, uh, how did your pro-life work escalate from this one instance where you were essentially trying something that not only hadn't been tried before, but all of the major abortion organizations, both the industry organizations and the lobby groups claim cannot be done and turn that experience into something that you not only did regularly for other women, but have turned it into something the pro-life movement uses right across the United States. I've seen women leave a clinic to get the abortion pill reversed, and the entire uh, the entire system, the entire method of getting it reversed, is something that that you pioneered. So, how how explain that journey from this one story you've just told us to uh, where the pro-life movement is using abortion pill reversal as a matter of course? And I don't know exactly how many babies have been saved, but we'll we'll get to that. It's been it's been a a lot of people have been saved by this. Yeah, so, you know, I was, as I said before, I was pro-life when I became a doctor, and when I moved here in 2001, but within a year, I met Flip Benham. So, Flip Benham, as you know, has been, you know, a stalwart on the sidewalks uh, trying to help women and has been an advocate for pro-life activity for years and years, and so I met him, and he challenged me, uh, gave me this really interesting challenge. He said, suppose you uh, had a discussion with the devil, and the devil said, okay, Dr. Harrison, there's this one baby uh, has Down syndrome, is going to be uh, uh, delivered with lots of birth defects and going to have a lot of problems. I'll make a deal with you. If I can have this one baby, then I will not uh, try to have any more abortions or any more. Uh, I will not go after any other babies in the, for the rest of eternity if, if you will just allow me to have this one baby. And that was a very interesting uh, challenge. And, you know, I thought about it for a minute. I said, you know what? I just, I can't do it. I cannot make the deal with the devil that I'm going to give him uh, a baby, whether the baby has birth defects or whatever that, you know, and, um, and that was kind of a pivotal point for me uh, where I said, you know what? Uh, It's gotta, it's kind of gotta be an all or nothing thing. Um, And so shortly after that, they were having a big event here and father Frank Pavone was coming to their event. And so I wasn't Catholic at the time, but Flip and his, all of his people knew that my, my family and my wife is Catholic and my kids are Catholic. So since I was the closest thing to a Catholic that they had in their crew, they said, why don't you uh, go around with Father Pavone for the week that he's here to different speaking engagements and churches and that type of thing. So we did. We hosted Father Pavone. And that was a life-changing week for me because that got me connected with a lot of pro-life activism. And so, so from that point, um, I ended up becoming a medical advisor for Father Pavone and Priest for Life. And so I was already a, an advisor for him at the time that this reversal occurred. So once the reversal occurred and was successful, I told him about it. And he was very excited. And he said, you know, Matt, you need to, uh, you know, you need to come up with this protocol and you need to disperse this far and wide to get it known. Well, of course, I'm a family practice doctor who does mm-hmm. obstetrics. And so I, I think I had some fear that if I tried to push this, that I would be attacked and that people say, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You're not a real OBGYN. Uh, and of course, we've been deli- I've been delivering babies for uh, 10 years at that point, um, but uh, still had some fear there. And of course, it wasn't a proven method. And, you know, I'm a scientist. And so I know that these things take time and I know that they're, 
there, you know, there might be side effects or, or some safety studies that need to be done. This was just a case study, a case report. So there are some interviews that were done. A couple of the doctors called me uh, from around the United States and even from Australia <clears throat> and asked me how I did it. And of course, we had used Tom, Thomas Hilger's, Dr. Hilger's uh, protocols for uh, low progesterone at NAPRO Fertility. Uh, up at Pope Paul VI Institute in Nebraska. So that's essentially the protocol that we had used. And of course, it's not every day that women are knocking at my door saying, hey, I want to reverse my abortion. So it's not like right. we had a lot of these coming up. So uh, interestingly, about two years later, a completely separate from my event, Dr. George Delgado essentially discovered the exact same thing. And he did not even know about my reversal. He had been called by uh, someone in El Paso, and he's in San Diego. But someone in El Paso uh, had taken the abortion pill and wanted to reverse it, and he came up with the same conclusion, that we can reverse this by using progesterone. And so he told the doctor in El Paso how to do that, and they did it, and it was successful. And so Dr. Uh, Delgado with Cultural Life Family Services in San Diego paired up with Dr. Mary Davenport, who's an OBGYN, and, um, and so they decided, you know what, this might be something, uh, you know, strong here. So they started gathering stories of women that had tried to reverse their abortions. And so they contacted me about mine. And so in, in 2012, in the uh, Annals of uh, Pharmacotherapy, they published a, a case series of just six women who had tried to reverse their abortions using progesterone. Four of those women's women were successful. Two of them were not. That comes out to about 67%, which is a, a number that keeps coming up. And, um, and so that was just a study that was a retrospective study of something that had already happened. Just to say, you know, maybe there's something here. We should do more research in it. Right. And so then Dr. Delgado really hit, spearheaded forming this network. And so we started working together, he on the West Coast and I on the East Coast, and I became an associate director of uh, Abortion Pill Reversal Network. And so we started uh, giving talks and uh, meeting with people uh, about trying to uh, get these protocols out. And uh, we developed a kit called the Abortion uh, Pill Reversal Kit. It was just a box, kind of a marketing piece that had all the forms and information in it, as well as, uh, uh, you know, band-aids and needles and that kind of thing that women, that uh, doctors could put on their shelf. They could put the progesterone in there and they, they would have it at a moment's notice in case a woman came in to have an, uh, an abortion reversal. And so uh, we, we put, put these kits out all over the United States and slowly and surely it grew. And uh, to this point now, there are over 800 providers across the United States, and we're in 15 different countries um, that uh, we've had successful uh, reversals in. So tell this, us a few of the story. Yeah, well, go, go ahead. I was just going to say that in 2016, you know, we had we had a, a toll-free uh, hotline that was being staffed by nurses, and um, it was really getting so busy that we felt it'd be better uh, for us to turn that over to somebody else that could have the logistics to handle that so that Dr. Delgado and I could focus more, along with uh, Dr. Davenport, focus more on research, pro-life research. Right. And so um, at that time, 
uh, we uh, teamed up with um, Heartbeat International. And Heartbeat International now has taken over the abortion pill reversal hotline and also the referral service. And now what's great about that and what's made it grow is that they are connected and affiliated with over 2,500 uh, crisis pregnancy centers. And they're in about 60 different countries across the world, Heartbeat International. And of course, they have large conferences where we can uh, disseminate this information mm -hmm. very easily. So they've been a great asset uh, in, in spreading this protocol. And in the meantime, Dr. Delgado now is starting something called the Steno Institute. And that's going to be a research arm where we are going to be uh, giving grants to uh, physicians and pro-life uh, researchers who are going to be doing research, pro-life research specifically, to combat the abortion industry and also to uh, help and uh, save, preserve life. So to your knowledge, uh, how many women have successfully reversed their abortions based on the work of this network? Yeah, so about six months ago, the official count was over 900 healthy babies born. Amazing. Uh, I would not be surprised if that number is over 1,000 now. And at any given time, there's 150 to 200 women that are actively going through the protocol. Their babies haven't been born yet, but they're going through the protocol. So, uh, yeah, it's been, we've been really blessed to see a lot of amazing stories, uh, twins that have been reversed. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, we, I can think off the top of my head probably five sets of twins uh, that have uh, been saved uh, with the reversal procedure. So a couple of uh, interesting things on this is, first of all, when, why do women change their mind from one day to the next? The, uh, the only uh, instance that I know of, because I've seen this happen, is when they meet a sidewalk counselor in front of an abortion clinic and they're, they're basically there to get the, the second set of pills and, and they get their mind changed. What's your experience as to why it is that the women take the first um, pills but then decide in between that they actually want to reverse that process? My experience has been that most of the women that have, have chosen reversal are women that were feeling pressured in the first place okay. by outside forces and by their, their support network to have an abortion. But uh, morally, they felt it was wrong to do even before they took the pill. And they felt like they were in a situation where they had no choice. They might have had uh, jobs or um, housing situations. Many, many women are being told by their parents, if you don't abort this baby, I'm going to kick you out. And so really they feel like, okay, I'm going to be homeless and pregnant. And so they feel like they don't have a choice in what to do. And so they take the pill and most of them immediately regret it. And I've had story after story of women who have gone to the parking lot and tried to make themselves vomit to get the pill out of their system. Oh, no kidding. And so, uh, yeah, they, most of my, my encounters have been with people who have immediately regretted it. And so uh, what sort of stories have you heard? You said uh, you like five sets of twins um, as, as this network has grown. And, and, and I've, I've heard the network discussed at many major pro-life conferences and, and, and talking about the work that's being done. What are some of the stories that you've heard, especially because I think these stories are important because, uh, as I mentioned before, the abortion industry is doing its best uh, to convince everybody that you guys don't exist and that this doesn't work. Right. And, and we can certainly address some of their... Um, uh, some of the, I guess, the defenses against some of the, what they've been saying. 
which might be interesting for, for your listeners, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, Ashley's story from the very beginning it, to me is one of the most powerful because, you know, this is a brave young lady who she is a very meek personality. She's not a very loud and boisterous person. Um, but for her to step up and to take this risk, never having done before, uh, and knowing that she was going to lose the support of her, of her boyfriend at the time that he was going to be out of the picture and she was trying to go to school and, and, and she was afraid that she would not be able to live at her parents' house and all that type of thing. Well, you know, she had the baby, everything turned out fine. She went back to respiratory therapy school. Now she is a respiratory therapist, uh, saving lives of babies at, at, uh, hospitals here in the Charlotte, North Carolina area which, I mean, that alone is an amazing story. She went on, she was able to buy, purchase a home for her and her daughter. And, um, you know, she's just been very successful. And, and what a testament, I mean, what a hero for mm-hmm. that little girl. Her mother is just her own hero, uh, which, is, which is great. You know, Rebecca Buell Hagen uh, has a great story. And she, you know, goes all over the nation uh, speaking at, at uh, pro-life, uh, at crisis pregnancy centers, she and I testified in Idaho together about um, uh, trying to get a bill that that it essentially promotes informed consent for women who are getting the abortion pill. And so, you know, she was in a, in a situation where she was in an abusive situation and she uh, needed to get out of that, but she found herself pregnant. And, um, and she, again, felt like she had no choice and took the abortion pill and immediately regretted it. <clears throat> And then she was able to find a provider and reverse her abortion. And uh, I think uh, her little boy is now seven. He's a great, he's a great little kid. And uh, of course he's, he's, he is very boisterous and very, you know, great in front of the cameras. Um, So uh, they have a great story, but yeah, there's a lot of them out there. You know, I I had a woman that uh, contacted me from Argentina uh, on Facebook messenger and uh, she had she had heard about it. She, you know, what happens is women regret it and then they have their mobile devices and they immediately look up, uh, how to reverse an abortion or something like that. So we've had, you know, tech savvy people that have uh, loaded the internet with, for mobile devices and for, 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 uh, computer devices. So when people do internet searches, they have cookies that follow them, uh, to their next sites, you know, oh, I need to reverse my abortion. And so they'll get something from the APR network, abortion pill reversal network. And so they'll say, oh, well, no, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to go, let me go find something to eat. So now they, they're searching for restaurants, but these cookies follow them and, and they'll, you know, they'll have a little advertisement on the side that'll say, um, you know, uh, are you pregnant? Are you in a crisis pregnancy? Are you, are you pregnant and don't know what to do or whatever? And so we just, it gives them the, the phone number so that they can then call the network and they can talk to one of our counselors about their options if they want to reverse their abortion. But this woman from Argentina had essentially searched the, the internet and uh, found me somehow through Facebook. And so she asked me, you know, what can I do? Uh, and there, I believe RE46 might actually be maybe not over the counter, but close to it. But progesterone, Prometrium, is over the counter there. She could just go to the pharmacy and just buy it. Okay. And so she actually, yeah, so she went to the pharmacy, bought Prometrium on her own, 
and reversed her own abortion <clears throat> and um, her baby did fine. So, so that's, that's somebody that doesn't even go into our numbers because we don't really have a provider. We don't have any kind of controlled setting. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, uh, but there's, so I don't even know how many people around the world have done it that of course we don't even keep, can't keep yeah. track of all those. Yeah. So moving on to the, the abortion industry's objections and basically, um, as I mentioned before, the abortion industry, the major abortion organizations, I've seen articles on, on a half a dozen mainstream media sites saying, you know, the myth of abortion pill reversal and no, you can't reverse your abortion and things like that. So what are some of their main objections to what you do and, and how do you respond to their claims that this can't be done? You're telling stories about children, uh, some of whom you've met and they're saying that this doesn't happen. So let's square that circle. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing they kept saying was junk science and they had this out here that is junk science. So, you know, a real scientist understands that the way that new medications and new protocols come to being many times through accidents even, but they have to have some type of bio make biological sense. And right. so the receptor, the, the substrate re receptor model that I've already explained, where you have a key that fits into a lock, unlocks the lock, causes it to perform its function, and then that can be blocked by an antagonist, which is RE46, which causes the, the system not to work. So that biological system is, is well-established and makes logical biological sense. So it makes sense biologically and medically that if we give more progesterone, that we could possibly outcompete RE46. So that's the first step in understanding, is this strong science? Second, we have to see if there are animal models that reproduce this. So there's a Japanese study many years ago that was done where they gave uh, rats uh, RE46, and half of them they gave um, progesterone, and half of them they did not. In the half that they, get, they did not give progesterone, almost, I think it's actually 100%, it might have been 98%, lost the pups, lost the rat, the rat babies. They all died. But in the arm that received progesterone, it was a, at least 80% of them um, reversed and mm. survived. And so then they did autopsies. They essentially, they did dissections of the rats and they found out that the uterine linings were different, that the changes that were caused in the uteruses of the rats that had been given RE46 were different than the rats who had been given progesterone. So the progesterone essentially nullified all the other effects of RE46. And so then the next step in this, in this, in the science of coming up with new protocols is you get case studies. You find people that have actually done this and reversed or been given progesterone to possibly reverse it. Now, this is not something that you can control in an ethically in an ethical way. These have to be what are called retrospective studies. You look back at situations where women wanted to do this, understood the risks, and then proceeded with taking progesterone. Uh, but it's not it's not a situation where you're going to take a thousand pregnant women give them all RU46 and only give half of them progesterone and half of them not and see right, what right. happens. Yeah. I mean, that's not ethical. 
And so it'd be impossible to come up with a study that apparently American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists want to come up with. Um, and so we have these case studies, and we only had six in the first, uh, in the first uh, paper that was published. And so they said, oh, well, that's too small of a sample size. That, and they're right. That is a very small sample size, but there's 67% survived. And so they said, well, that's too small of a sample size. We never know what's going to happen when it's released to the general public. And so over the years, then we collected more and more data. So then in 2018, uh, we published another study in the issues of law and medicine where there are 757 women that were involved in the study. About 567 were included in the study. In other words, they met inclusion criteria. Right. And in order to meet inclusion criteria, it means they have to stay with the study. They can't move away and we lose track of them, that type of thing. Some of the women started the uh, reversal procedure and then got back into that environment where they weren't being supported and changed their minds again and went back and got an abortion. And so those people would fall out of the study because obviously they didn't follow the protocol. And so of those 500 and I think I wrote down here, um, 560, uh, yeah, 547 women overall of all the women that remained in the study, 48%, uh, had a successful pregnancy birth of a healthy baby. Now that also includes people who did most of the protocol, but not all of it. Some of them missed some doses. Some of them didn't follow up properly, mm -hmm. but we were able to confirm that, uh, that they had babies and were doing fine. Now there's also two subsets of people. Uh, some women took the shots properly throughout the entire first trimester. And some women took oral pills instead of shots throughout the first trimester, and they did it properly, just as the protocol says. Those two studies, the women with the shots, 64% of them had healthy uh, babies delivered. And of the women who took the oral tablets of Prometrium to reverse their abortions, 68% of them had uh, um, healthy babies born. So we keep seeing this number somewhere right around 67% of women who take the uh, protocol properly, who take the reversal medication properly, end up with healthy babies. And so then they, the abortion industry started to say, oh, well, if you do nothing, you'll get at least 50% of these babies are gonna do okay anyway, because they have studies that have shown that if women um, take just the first tablet, the methapristone, right. that they will have a 50% failed abortion rate. So we were interested in that, those numbers, and so we, did, we released another, another study in uh, Issues of Law and Medicine that did a, a, a literature survey on what is the exact number, what is the exact survival rate of women who take mifepristone but do not take Cytotec, the second pill, to induce labor. So it was very interesting. So we found that women who just took the first tablet but did not take the labor-inducing medication, we found some studies that showed ultrasound data which concluded that anywhere from 7 to 23% of the time, babies can survive just the first tablet. 
Right. But the best numbers are only 23%, not 50%. Right. And so we're trying to figure out where do they get this 50% failed abortion rate? Well, it comes in their definition of failed abortion. A failed abortion to the industry is if you don't end up with a, a dead fetus outside of the mother. And ah. so many, yeah, so many of the times they had a dead fetus that remained in the abortion, in the, in the mother, but they counted that as a failed abortion. So our study shows that at the very best numbers, 23% will survive after the first pill alone. A lot of that has to do with how old the baby is and also if there's multiple gestations. So in other words, if you have twins or triplets or if the baby is further along, and now, of course, RE46 is approved up to 10 weeks or 70 days uh, since last menstrual period. But the older the baby is or the more, just, more number of babies there are, the less effective that first habit will be on its own. One of the things that uh, we start to hear increasingly is that uh, the abortion pill, due to its nature, it being a, a home abortion, is in some ways more traumatizing because the women will often abort their child and they'll see their child at home, whereas at the clinic they never would have. Have you heard any stories about that taking place? Oh, of course. And, and you know, Unplanned, which was out recently and essentially and now has been shown in Canada and all over the world uh, depicts what can happen in a home abortion where uh, Abby Johnson, uh, who I was just speak talking with the other day when she came to Charlotte, um, uh, took the abortion pill, went home and had a terrible, a terrible um, uh, event where she was, had a lot of bleeding. Um, you know, the, fetus and the products of conception end up in the toilet and many times it can look like a war zone i'm not saying it always looks like that but it certainly can it can be very traumatic and women can bleed anywhere from three days up to six months after having a home abortion and you can have ongoing bleeding that can be life-threatening just within hours of right. starting the abortion that's one of the real problems with these what they call teleabortions, where you have women that are maybe in Alaska or in, in very remote places, and you have a clinic set up where you have a desk and it has a locked drawer on it, and the women are in front of a computer and talking to a doctor. So the doctor, uh, and they might have an ultrasound technician or maybe they don't, but a doctor decides whether or not to release the abortion pill to that person in the remote area. And then they take that abortion pill, but if they start bleeding, there's no way that they can get to anywhere to stop yeah. the bleeding or to help resuscitate or save the mother's life. And so it's interesting that they want, they, they preach safe abortions, but then they push teleabortions, which are in no way safe at all because they're in remote areas where women can't get any help. How safe or dangerous is the RU486, the abortion pill regimen for the woman? Uh, it's a good question because I don't know whose numbers to trust. Right. You know, Guttmacher Institute is a, a research arm of Planned Parenthood, and we're not really going to get good numbers from them. But, you know, you're and, and, and that's a problem with, with um, complications uh, that show up in the emergency room and also in death, or, death certificates. So interestingly, you know, they've, they've been saying for years, 
oh, well, abortion is safer than childbirth. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested to know where they get these, these uh, numbers because, for instance, in North Carolina, I signed death certificates because I'm a hospital physician. I work in a hospital in the ICU uh, in critical care situations and people die. And so on a North Carolina uh, death certificate, it has a specific box that says, if the patient was female, were they pregnant at the time of death? And if not, were they pregnant within the past three months? Were they pregnant within the past six months? And so you have all these boxes to check as to whether or not they were pregnant. So it'd be interesting to know if that puts them into the category of pregnancy-related deaths. Mm. So suppose a woman who has an abortion is bleeding to death, goes into the hospital, and then dies as a result of the abortion. The, the, death, the death certificate is going to list cause of death, acute blood loss, anemia, or hemorrhaging. Right. And then they're going to check a box that says that the woman was pregnant at the time or was pregnant within the past three months. All of a sudden, you have an abortion-related death that is now considered a pregnancy-related right. death. Right. And so the numbers are all screwy and you can't make any sense of them. Okay. Well, fi final question for those who are listening and watching this, where can they find your work? Which sites do you recommend to, to learn more about this and also just to have these resources at their disposal, especially for all the pro-lifers listening, where can they find uh, what they need to find? Yeah. So, uh, you know, abortion pill reversal or, or abortion pill rescue network, it goes by both names. Uh, and, and Heartbeat International runs that, and I would go to that website, and it has one eight seven seven number, I believe, uh, to uh, to get there. And uh, maybe you can share that with your listeners. Um, I don't have it written down right here. Right here. Yeah, we'll get it up there. Yeah, so that that's the best way to connect to the network. And we're always looking for volunteers. We're looking for new providers. Uh, so if you if any of your listeners have doctors or or uh, uh, mid-level providers, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses. Um, we need uh, them in the network so that uh, more women can have uh, this treatment available to them. All right, Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all of this. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my interview with Dr. Matthew Harrison. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. And we hope you'll join us again next week or head over to LifeSiteNews.com and check out past shows. We're on YouTube where you can subscribe. We're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thanks so much.